When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From their first day on earth, they will be able to look up and know that there is law and order in the heavens. My God, what's Bond doing? I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. What's Drax up to in that laboratory? Why don't you ask him yourself? Moonraker will transport you to another world. Don't make any mistakes, Dumbledore. The situation is critical. At least I shall have the pleasure of putting you out of my misery. Take a giant step for mankind. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. One of the great scientific feats of the age. As President Trump has said in his words, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. Space Force. Space Force. Space Force. Satellite seems to have done something that U.S. officials admit they have never seen before. Satellites are information providers, and we are in the information age. Looks like we have a genuine arms race in space going on right now. When information gives you an edge, satellites become a very attractive target. Activate laser. Prepare to destroy spacecraft. Don't worry, they'll make it. It's only 100 miles to Earth. Hello and welcome to Science Dish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Hello. Uh, this week it is your turn to delve into some, I think, potentially terrifying territory. Uh, what have you chosen for us? So, um, obviously, we're both wearing our tuxedos, that's a clue. Yeah, I don't love it. I don't feel hugely comfortable. Oh, it's good, isn't it? I like mm. it, I like it. And and how's that martini I made you? I just, I, it, like, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Like, <laughs> I just don't want the martini. <laughs> Uh, God what, damn you. Why, why have you done this? Well, because this week we're going to look at the militarization of space, exploring the classic 1979 Roger Moore, James Bond film, Moonraker. Yes, please. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean... It's uh, our first Bond, isn't it? It is our first Bond film. I didn't think we had a Bond in us. No, it's good. Um, that's why we've dressed up. Mm. So, um... I mean, I presume you've seen it. What am I? Some sort of animal? Of course I've <laughs> seen it. You're not a monster. You've seen I Moonraker. I am not a monster. I've seen Moonraker several times. So I saw it at the cinema. Probably you weren't even Did you? born. Hang on. When, when did were it you come born? out? 79? 79. No, I wasn't seeing it when I was born, which was 1979. <laughs> yeah. So you, your birthday is 
May? May 20th, thank you. May yes. 20th. So it had been out basically a month and I was at the cinema watching it with my nan. Ah, did she like it? She loved it. She always loved a Bond film. That's We really bonded over Bond, in fact. If you say bonded over Bond again, I'm going to get changed out of the tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> You're really pushing your luck. <laughs> Give a quick, for anyone, I mean, I sort of think, anyone who hasn't seen it, just just... Listen to something else now. Like you disgust me. <laughs> <laughs> so Moonraker is yes. it's about a baddie called Hugo Drax mm-hmm. who steals a space shuttle, uh, which uh, James Bond is sent to investigate. And it turns out that basically he's sort of setting up this master plan uh, where he's got several space shuttles. He's got a space force, and he's going to destroy all of mankind, humankind, uh, with nerve gas. Mm-hmm. And he's got you know, weapons in space like lasers. So it came out um, just after Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So with all the, the hype around Star Wars, they basically chose that this was the film they were going to do. They're going to do it pretty quickly, put a lot of money into it uh, because everyone was hyped about war yeah. in space. And yeah. so of all the sort of possible films that they decided to do, it was, it was going to be this one. And people, I mean, people loved it. I mean, it's full of you know, ridiculous comedy moments with Jaws. Oh, Jaws, Jaws falls out of an aeroplane. Oh, Jaws. <laughs> falls out of an aeroplane without a parachute. Mm-hmm. And he lands, <laughs> luckily for him, in a circus tent on the trampoline. But then I sort of, you look at Jaws and think, even if he hadn't landed on a trampoline, he's probably, he's probably going to be, be all right, isn't he? The guy is absolutely nails. Yeah, yeah. He does sort of get up and brush himself down from almost everything and just yeah. start again trying to kill James Bond. Um, so what's our, what's our big question then? So our big question is, will there be a war in space? Oh, cheery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, as per our scene that we've tracked down, an absolute legend. We have we have got Joan Johnson Fries, who works... I mean, she's the Professor of National Security Affairs at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. She knows everything. Basically, if you want to discuss conflict in space, she is the go-to person. And I, I do want to. Right. Um, what, do we, what do we ask her first? So we started off by asking her what the big issues are in space. And quite surprisingly, she's the biggest problem that's coming is going to be to do with satellites. Technology has always facilitated what we call force enhancement, which means increasing the chances of success of your operations on the ground, your terrestrial operations. What space does is take you another leap forward, enabling you to have 24-7 access for reconnaissance of areas that you might not otherwise be able to view. It gives you an information conduit, which brings together lots of sources of information and can synthesize it and provide it to ground troops. It gives you everything from weather to surveillance to reconnaissance to communication. It takes your ground capabilities, your terrestrial capabilities, up exponentially. There is an increasing need for secure satellite communications and for satellites immune to interference. Satellites will orbit the Earth every 12 hours to provide highly accurate and continuous global coverage to the Army, Marines, Air Force, and the Navy. Militaries rely on having more and better information than their adversary to gain advantages. And since satellites are the primary providers of information, whether it's information gathered through satellites, through things like reconnaissance, or whether the satellite is merely a conduit of passing communications from one individual or one group to another, when information gives you an edge, satellites become a very attractive target. 
the Soviets are actively engaged in the development and flight testing of an anti-satellite capability which could threaten the survivability of some of our space systems. This situation raises the specter of space warfare as a new dimension of conflict. So are things starting to hot up on the space war front then? I mean, things are really hotting up. So, so in June, Donald Trump said, we're going to create an American space force. Mm-hmm. You remember that? So the idea yes, is course, basically yes. American domination of space. And, uh, and the idea is to like take it away from just being a branch of the military. It's sort of a branch of the Air Force at the moment, yeah. which is Space Command. And he said he wants to create an elite group of warfighters who are specializing in the domain of space. And the but it does idea, sound good. It does sound good, actually. And in, in Moonraker, they have the, the US Marines come up on shuttles and, like, you know, deal with Drax's forces and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the idea was there, seeded by, seeded by the Moonraker movie. Obviously, Roger Moore should take credit for that. So, do you think Trump has watched Moonraker and thought, <laughs> do you know what? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's you know, it's possible. It's, isn't it? it's entirely possible. Yeah. And, and he kind of has a point. I mean, this is the weird thing about it is that because things like satellites, are up there, essentially unprotected but absolutely vital parts of the infrastructure, mm. the military infrastructure. You know, you do need some people maybe whose job it is to make sure that that stuff isn't messed yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, partly I'm a bit disappointed when we're talking about um, war in space. You sort of get, like, pretty excited. And then the main focus is on satellites. You're like, oh, satellites. Satellites just seem a bit dull, don't they? Bit sort of down to earth. I'm, right, I'm taking the tux off. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, you've had enough warnings. <laughs> well, anyway, so yeah, satellites are. I, I mean, get so, that satellites are useful for everything. I mean, they're essential for absolutely everything. Credit card transactions re- rely on satellites. You know, we've got the whole of the Western economy basically runs on satellites these days. Phones, television, communications. Runs via satellites. Runs via though. satellites. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and. Um, Thank you for being such a pedant. No problem. And, uh, and, and so, you know, farmers are using them. You've got weather reports, climate reports. You know, we're keeping mm. on track of, you know, hurricanes and everything else. So all of our well-being you know, is kind of linked to these satellites. And, of course, all the military operations we know are, you know, satellite-led. They're mm. information-led. The information comes from satellites, you know, which can be deployed anywhere on Earth. You can photograph anything you want to. And so they become like the absolutely sort of key point in future warfare. Yeah, if you want to attack a nation, like, start zapping their satellites. Yeah. But there are there are rules in place to prevent that happening at the moment, aren't there? Sort of. So there's a thing called the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the yeah. fact that it's 1967 tells you it's probably could do with updating. Uh-huh. Uh, so 107 countries have signed up for this. Uh, and it basically, you know, is a result of that 1960s sort of ethos of like, oh God, we've got to stop all these weapons of mass destruction. So mm-hmm. you're not allowed to, if you're a signatory, you won't have nuclear, biological or chemical weapons in space or, you know, used from Earth's orbit. So mm-hmm. the idea is like you don't do mass destruction from space. Yeah. And, um. That seems fair. <laughs> which, which kind of seems fair. No doubt you have realized the splendor of my conception. First, a necklace of death about the Earth. Fifty globes, each releasing its nerve gas over a designated area, each capable of killing 100 million people. The human race, as you know it, will cease to exist. Then, a rebirth, a new world, 
Leaving you on your flying stud farm, conceiving your new master race. If you like, yes. But the old, um, the old Chinese, didn't they shoot down one of their own satellites? Yeah, so, I mean... It, See, that, that, I think, is... That's impressive. I mean, they, they used a missile, that was in 2007, but, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of, of a killer satellite, or satellite killers, goes back all the way to the 1960s, so the Russians... Really? Yeah, yeah. The Russians started deploying them, or, or making them, in, uh, I think it was like 1963, the first one. And, uh, and so they, they, right from the start of the satellite era, mm. basically saw satellites as being something that was worth not only being able to launch, but being able to take out. Yeah. So they, they launched a killer satellite uh, called Polyot 1, Flight 1. Uh-huh. And it was basically really maneuverable spacecraft mm-hmm. uh, that could just you know, go up there and approach a satellite and take it out. And how's it taken out? Just sort of just giving it a little shove to uh, throw it out give of it orbit? A shove, or? yeah, a kinetic impact. Yeah. So that's all you need to do, really. Yeah, yeah, knock, knock it out of orbit and, a hole and, satellite. It, and it's done, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, these things are incredibly sort of vulnerable. Mm. So they launched it in 1963. By 1968, uh, they did an actual intercept. So it only took them five years to get really? it right. And I took, didn't know that. And took out a target satellite. So although the Chinese have done it recently, actually the Russians the did Russia it back in the 1960s, for... which is pretty Im- impressive. Because I guess satellites have no, like, there's no defensive system on a satellite. No, well, that's at the all. thing. They're totally no. vulnerable. Like, yeah. if you do want to attack them, yeah. then pretty easy. Yeah. Once you're up there. This, this this might be a, a naive uh, thing to ask, but I would have thought that um, sort of blowing up satellites in low Earth orbit is not going to be a particularly good idea because it's just going to be debris everywhere that's going to start sort of knackering at other satellites, your own satellites. Is that not going to happen? Yes, that is exactly what's going to happen. So I think the Chinese blowing up their own satellite produced something like 150,000 pieces of debris. Wicked. Yeah, which people weren't too happy about because obviously each one of those is a potential killer for other satellites. So you yeah. get the, you get to the point where um, you know once you have enough debris and it it's going to hit something. If it hits that thing, then that thing breaks up, and you get this runaway effect where every, it's like a chain reaction basically. Yeah. And uh, it was back in nineteen seventy eight, a guy called Donald Kessler uh, talked talked about this whole thing and like you, you, know, you literally need like a one centimeter paint flake, like mm. a tiny little thing, a bit of paint comes off. And once that's travelling fast, you know, they're moving like 10 kilometres a second once they're up there. And there's like a... a yeah, because no it, air resistance. Though. No, it's it's travelling fast already. It yeah. will continue to travel yeah. fast, yeah. And, and, and it's apparently equivalent you know, of like being hit by a baby cow or something that's travelling that fast because it's just so impactful. So a small, a relatively small bit of debris from a satellite exploding could easily take out another satellite. Yeah. Apparently if it's 10 centimetres big, it's something like 7 kilograms of TNT hitting you. I mean, it's a, wow. it's a significant effect. And so you get this kind of idea where, where you know, we've, we've tracked sort of something like 20,000 objects of debris that are sort of bigger than a tennis ball kind of size. Mm. Um, and, you know, every one of those could destroy a satellite. Or actually, it slightly makes it difficult for us to... I'm thinking if I'm trying to launch out of... Earth's orbit. I don't really want to get hit by that debris either. No, I mean, I? you just have to, uh, you know, assume. I mean, you can still bank on the idea of not being hit by it, but it's going to happen. And once it happens, yeah. it, you know, it could escalate and just kind of have this runaway effect. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's not a great idea. An entire city in space. And still nothing on the radar scanner. So nobody on Earth knows it's there. Right. Drax must have a radar jamming system. And you, I mean, you don't have to blow them up. You just have to jam their transmissions. Yeah. Or as the, I mean, we've also seen recently that the Russians are starting to spoof GPS satellites. So, 
So there's a whole sort of raft of, of boats around the, I think it's like the near Siberia or whatever, mm-hmm. um, where their GPS has gone wrong. And they've said, oh, you know, we, we, we've gone into the wrong port or it looks like we've been sort of completely um, misguided by our GPS system. It turned out that they were testing something where they just took over GPS satellite signals and um, and sent people into the wrong place. Naughty, naughty, naughty bastards. <laughs> so there is stuff bubbling under, I think. It's quite interesting. Moonraker launch program, now commencing. Blasting off from a Russian cosmodrome, a Soyuz rocket surges into space. Its payload, a military satellite shrouded in mystery. The military used to talk about warfare domains in terms of air, land, and sea. But more recently, they've added space and cyber as domains of potential warfare. That gets very complicated, though, when you're dealing with what's called dual-use technology. And dual-use technology is any technology that has both civil and military purposes. And when it has a military purpose, it can be for either offensive or defensive use. And space technology, about 95% of space technology is dual use, which means it's very difficult for a potential adversary to determine your intent. Tonight, space and military analysts are investigating whether that satellite is the same one which a top U.S. arms control official said this week was exhibiting, quote, abnormal behavior. In other words, you can have a satellite and that satellite can be maneuverable. Well, that's very valuable if you're trying to do something like refuel a satellite, because satellites are sent into orbit with basically one tank of gas. But if you can maneuver a satellite, you could also run it into another satellite, which makes it a space weapon. They've nicknamed it Kamikaze because they say it could at some point have the capability to go on the attack and slam into American satellites. Ever since the Gulf War in 1991, militaries have come to recognize that space technology can give you the edge. That 1991 Gulf War was called the first space war. And ever since there, other countries like India and like China have been working very hard to increase their capabilities to those of the United States. And now Russia is also reconstituting their space capabilities and moving into uh, realms of dual-use technology called counter space that have the potential to be used for weapons. All personnel to command satellite. I've heard that Hugo Drax is obsessed with the conquest of space. Now I can believe it. Oh, it's coming, isn't it? It is coming. It's and coming. it's coming sort of under the radar of like, well, you know, there's stuff we can do in space, which is worth doing. And so... Yeah, because presumably, I mean, as soon as there's uh, uh, the possibility of, of collecting resources, mining or anything like that... Yeah. In space, so whether it's from the moon or from asteroids or from Mars, that's when things start to hot up as well, isn't it? Yeah, when, I mean, uh, yeah. conflicts are always about resources, ultimately. Exactly. So, so there are resources up there that people want, and you know, and they're legitimately saying, "Well, you know, actually, we have a right to kind of go up there and take some of this stuff." So, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty says you can't own any celestial body, mm-hmm. uh, but you can take bits from it. And bring them back. So, like, like the Apollo, like Apollo Eleven, yeah, yeah, they yeah. The, yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of like you know, okay, nobody's going to dispute that they actually now are owned by the United States. Uh-huh. And so, you kind of have this sort of it's a grey area then. <laughs> grey. So, because yeah, if I can area. bring back a bit, like a few samples from the moon, presumably I can go back and then bring 
a bit more and people yeah. are like okay okay and then i go and then i'm really starting to mine and people say you're taking the piss now yeah that's too much yeah yeah and you're like well the treaty doesn't really say <laughs> like i'm just these are just samples that yeah. i'm then selling <laughs> yeah yeah i mean in fact there is a moon agreement the 1979 moon agreement uh although the u.s hasn't actually signed up to it and that forbids any state to conduct commercial mining on planets oh, and really? asteroids but, but the US haven't signed, so it's no, sort of and not only have then. they not signed up to it, they actually in 2015 they passed the Space Act, which says any American private companies can mine whatever the shit they like. So oh, okay, uh, so, cool. Uh, yeah. Everyone's like, what? Yeah, we're not going to sign your treaty, and also in other news, we are going to say <laughs> that we definitely can. So American companies, according to American law, now have the right to go and do commercial mining so wherever they want to do it uh, off planet. Um, and, and so uh, private companies, uh, I'm guessing, are absolutely drooling. And of just course thinking, they are. Because I know yeah. there's loads of venture capital money going yeah. into space startups at the moment. Yeah, so you've got the likes of Richard Branson and uh, Larry Page. Um, they've got a, a, a company called Planetary Resources. There's another one called Moon Oh, yeah, Ex- what are they after? <laughs> yeah, I wonder, yeah. Uh, Moon Express is another one. Um, that sounds like a, a like a... Chinese restaurant. Yeah, it does a little bit. Oh, that's does a terrible it? name. Yeah, I'll tell you what's a terrible name. It's the British one. It's called Asteroid Mining Corporation. Yeah, but you just... you, you just sort of, AMC. Yeah. You just call it AMC. I yeah. think that's okay. Yeah. Then there's Deep Space Industries, which I really like. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's a good name, yeah. isn't it? Should I be putting some money into one of these companies? I'm I was wondering some, that myself. Yeah, like it sort of feels quite right for it, doesn't but it? But also feels a little bit unethical. I don't know. It's. I mean, any investment is kind of unethical, isn't it? Any of the good ones. <laughs> any of the ones where you make serious cash. Yeah, yeah. Forget offshore oil drilling for the moment. The next search for fuel could go off planet and soon. Today, some very wealthy businessmen laid out a plan to start mining asteroids. Here's the idea. Work with me now. Robotic spaceships would squeeze valuable fuel out of the asteroids along with precious metals like platinum and gold. It's solid. So what would I, if I was going to invest in this stuff, what should I be investing in? Is there like a particular area? Like asteroid mining, is that good for me? So asteroids, I mean, asteroids are good. I mean, potentially asteroids have a lot of money in them. I mean, ridiculous amount of money, honestly. So, well, when we speak about asteroids, they're not just like one type. There are some that there's. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. There are three different types of asteroid. Go on. So there are the sea asteroids, mm-hmm. uh, which are uh, mostly carbon and ice. Okay. Uh, so so not... that's, that's good stuff. It's, no, it's ice is all good. Right. Ice is ice is good. Ice, ice is, good ice is useful. Yeah. Yeah, you can have that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the S type, which are more sort of stony, uh, nickel and iron. And there's, yeah, okay. you know, yeah, so yeah, these yeah, are the yeah, common yeah, yeah, sort of yeah, things. Yeah. But the thing you really want to go for is the M type asteroids. So these, these, I mean, this, this is where the ka-ching is. Okay. So right? I'm, I'm investing in so, someone who's going after so, M type. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about, don't worry about the C. Don't Forget worry about the, the, C S. And the S. Let's go for the M. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is like a serious amount of money. So th- these are metallic. Asteroids. Oh, so it's just like a solid gold asteroid. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> no, better than that. I mean, they're, they're packed full of things like platinum and gold, yeah. rhodium, like rare metals that are Ooh, really, yeah. really, really costly <laughs> on Daddy. Earth. And so uh, like a one kilometer diameter asteroid, like M-type asteroid, mm-hmm. could have about 7,500 tons of platinum in it. Ooh. So that's like 150 billion right there. I'm in. 
I'm yeah, a- of course I'm you're, in. Of course you're in. I mean, the problem is... Like, easy to find? <laughs> no. Yeah. Actually, it turns out not really easy to find. Okay. And then um, there's, a, there's actually a, there's a NASA mission, which is going to... I think it's going to take off in 2022. Mm-hmm. And it's going to uh, a, an asteroid called uh, 16 Psyche. Yeah, not a bad name. Not a bad name. And uh, it will get there in... Uh, 2026, so it's like a four-year mission, but mm-hmm. but it's basically hugely metallic. So they've selected this because it reflects a lot of light. They see it up there, and it's like, oh, this is shiny. Uh, yeah. And, and it's so, so shiny. NASA are basically just like <laughs> space magpies. Yeah, so, so they're sort of saying, oh, well, you know, it's um it's a really interesting scientific <laughs> oh, thing I bet to it look is. for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the estimate is that the asteroid itself is worth 10 quintillion dollars. I don't even know what a quintillion That's is. That's one followed by 19 mass. zeros. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you analyse these things. Well, you, obviously, you look at the telescopes and then you use uh, spectrometers, uh, mm-hmm. spectrographs, sort of analysis to try and sort of work out what's underneath the surface. Because the surface, of course, might be misleading in some ways. It might, you know, because it's get rained on by comets and other asteroids and stuff. So you want to know what's under the surface. But they think that this thing is... is, um, is you know, worth investigating. And there's actually relatively few that are really, really worth investigating. So they, uh, there's a guy called Professor Martin Elvis who works at Harvard. Uh-huh. Um, he reckons, I mean, he's looked at So you have to look at how fast they're moving, how long it will take to kind of send a probe there. Mm-hmm. You need a certain sort of concentration of platinum. That's how they measure it. So it's ten, mm-hmm. more than 10 parts per million platinum. Mm-hmm. And if it's got a relative velocity to the speed of the Earth of less than 4.5 kilometers a second, mm-hmm. and it's bigger than a kilometer in diameter, mm-hmm. it's worth going for. Well, first of all, how many asteroids are there near us? So about 16,000 sort of, you know, that are sort of in the proximity of Earth. That's not that many, really, is it? It's not, no. Okay, so of those, how many are worth having a look at? Ten. Ten? <laughs> Ten? Ten? <laughs> yes. So you've got to get in there quick and put dips yeah, on Yeah, so exactly. You? Like, we've talked about that, but like six companies already. Yeah. Except if everybody does all the mining and brings it all back down, the price of these metals just plummets horribly. Oh. So there might be a sort of situation where we're bringing loads of this very valuable material back, but because we're bringing so much of it, it's not worth so much Well, anymore. I mean, you, you, yeah, you, you make the price plummet, yeah. don't you? I mean, supply yeah. and demand. So it's a bit like when the Spaniards sort of discovered South American gold and just like got loads... took all the Inca gold. All the, yeah. They took all the Inca gold, brought it back to Europe thinking, ha, 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 we're cashing in now. Yeah. And they had so oh, much gold, there, they flooded yeah. the market and crashed their own economy. Ha, ha, unlucky. Yeah, so we yeah. need to be careful of that. Yeah, so obviously, so what we want is to be in on the first company to bring it back. I mean, that's, that, that's probably the way to do it. So how soon is this going to be happening then? Are, are companies scheduling launches to asteroids as we speak no i mean nasa's nasa's sort of going to that one asteroid Mm -hmm. um the other companies i guess i guess are still weighing up you know what they can do they're still looking for money investments Mm. uh, from idiots like you Mm -hmm. who are willing to put a lot of money behind it how much you want guys if you've got any billionaire friends they'd be very grateful Uh i mean the technology is pretty hard um you know so we we haven't done a lot of asteroid mining the the japanese uh, brought back some dust from an asteroid um in 2010 uh they i think they're going to let milligrams i mean tiny amounts it's oh, basically okay. you know what got caught up on the the lander of, you know yeah. um and uh hayabusa 2 i think is is on an asteroid called ryugu or, or will be soon and that's um bringing uh, back you know proper samples okay 
No one is mining currently. No one is currently mining. And try and see which ones are worth mining. The view is that the next couple of decades are going to be huge for asteroid mining. And then actually, you know, then you've sort of got issues of conflict and who has rights. You know, is it winner takes all? If I go up there and I disable your spacecraft and nick all the stuff that you've already mined and harvested, is is that going to be deemed to be against the rules? Well, we're going to have a guess and say yes. (laughs) Well, there's no police force up there. Yet. No. So, I mean, this is all up in the air, quite literally. Well, will there be a war in space? There will certainly be disruptions of information from space. But will there be satellites being blown up in orbit? I think the chances of that happening are far less than the certain disruptions of information, simply because the military, above all others, are aware of the dangers that are created to their assets from debris. General Hyten, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, has said repeatedly, whatever you do in space, don't create debris. And blowing up satellites creates a lot of debris. So how you define space war is going to determine how that question gets answered. But there certainly will be an increased emphasis on disruption of space assets. If we were visible from Earth, they'd investigate. Where do you suppose that radar jamming system is? Preventing a war in space will take concerted efforts along several lines of activity. First and foremost, it's going to require a commitment to diplomacy. That means political commitment as well as resources and the manpower that's going to be needed. And I'm not sure we have that right now. The resolution encouraged all states, especially space-faring nations, to consider the possibility of upholding a political commitment not to be the first to place weapons in outer space in the spirit of establishing a community of shared future for human beings. There is activity going on at the United Nations towards building transparency and confidence building measures because so much of what happens in space is so far away. We have the tyranny of distance that creates opportunities for misperceptions and misunderstandings and miscalculations that can be very dangerous. So you need commitment to diplomacy and you need commitment to deterrence. Increasingly, we see that We need things like decentralization of assets. We need to build a moat around our space activities to make it undesirable for countries to try and attack them. I think all of these things together will present us with a much more stable space environment and one that's sustainable so that all countries can use it in the future. All right, so how would a space war actually kick off then? Because... I guess that no one is going to be that up for blowing up someone else's satellite because of the debris issue and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly not how it's going to start. I mean, if like, you think back to the Could escalate to start that. of the First World War, it starts with somebody getting shot in a car yeah. and then escalates from there. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a guy called Michael Schmidt, who's another space war expert, who basically says, you know, it'll start with, you know, cyber attacks. It'll yeah. start with people jamming other people's satellite transmissions. Uh, and then people like, like the Russians ghosting GPS and, and yeah. kind of spoofing various signals. And then it will be like, well, you know, we can't let them get away with that. Like we let them get away with a Novichok poisoning. Mm. You know, we'll, we'll do it back to them. And then that's when it escalates. And then it gets to the point where somebody says, do you know what? We can just fire a missile at that satellite and teach them a lesson. And, and actually, because of course we rely on GPS and, and satellites so much, but your military would become paralysed, wouldn't it, in terms of, like, yeah. operations on Earth? 
Yeah, some branches of the military now are sort of retraining their soldiers to work off pen and paper. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's so a like nav- go old navigation, school. like ordnance mm. survey maps and shit. Because you, you never quite know how bad it's going to get. Like, you know, these sort of guided missiles effectively are just GPS trackers, aren't they, on, yeah. on board that tell them where to go. So, yeah, we're quite vulnerable without this kind mm. of satellite-based technology. So, you know, which is why, you know, you kind of want there to be international agreements, just as there mm-hmm. are over chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously not everyone's signing up to the chemical weapons agreements sort of in practice. Uh, but you kind of want there to be some kind of sense of, you know, let's rein this in. Um, but like the Americans aren't signing up to what the UN wants them to do, partly because they're saying, look, the Russians and the Chinese are doing all this kind of stuff that, that we're not sure about. We don't know where mm-hmm. it's going. So we're not going to limit ourselves. So the whole thing is sort of, you know, quite precarious at the moment. So then, is there going to be a war in space? Yes, there is. How soon? I would say, it wouldn't surprise me if something kicked off in a decade. But before that, am I going to make loads of money by mining M-type asteroids? (laughs) No, you're not, because it's going to take more than a decade to get there. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, Next week, we'll be tackling blindness, as in the book, not the film. Although I think that you've only watched the film, haven't you? Yes. It's pathetic. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Eli Block. Sound designed by Eli Block. Special thanks to Professor Joan Johnson-Freeze. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you, it does help. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. Um, I met someone the other day who used to host the Nature podcast. Um, oh, yeah. Which is... Uh, it's a big housey. Quite, is it? Yeah, it is a big housey. And um, he loves science-ish. Well, of course he does. Yeah, he was like, oh, God, I love it. It's so refreshing. It's so like, like you know, an unusual way of presenting science. <laughs> I was like, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that, yes. Yeah. <laughs>